We're in the middle, by the way, of, if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks or today's your first day, we're in the middle of a series looking at the life of David, uh, King David, probably the the person in the Bible that, other than Jesus, that we get the most sort of information about, and he was called a man after God's own heart, and, uh, and so we just get to know David an awful lot in the Bible, and we're going to zoom ahead today. We're going to skip way ahead in the life of David. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you were here when we talked about how David was chosen, anointed to be king of Israel after the death of the first king, King Saul. And then if you were here last week, we told the story of David and Goliath, and we talked about how God is the one who brings down giants and uses quite regular people to do those uh, sort of things. And so today we're going to skip ahead several years, uh, over a decade in David's life uh, to where we get where we are. Change is absolutely inevitable in life. Uh, It's absolutely inevitable in life. This is the big idea today, honestly. If you take any note, here it is. Change is inevitable. Growth is an option. Um, Natalie has a grandmother who's 103, right? Granny Polly is 103. And we think sometimes about the things that Granny Polly has seen in her life. Like when Granny Polly was a kid, the Red Sox were still winning World Series the first time. Like, that's pretty amazing to think about, right? And when Granny Polly was a kid, she would look up into the night sky and still see stars because they hadn't been sort of drowned out by city lights. And she would look up into the sky in the day and not see airplanes and not see uh, phone towers and not see all of these things. In her life... Uh, we were talking the other day, we were like, I bet when Granny Polly was a kid growing up in Kentucky, people still got around that part of the country by horse and buggy. That's amazing, the amount of change this woman has processed through. She's gone from a world where people didn't have like telephones in their home to a world where you can get like telephones that are not much uh, bigger than like potato chips. So, I mean, her world has changed so violently And if we live long enough, we see that change. Frankly, I'm 42, and the amount of change I've seen in my lifetime is pretty staggering. Our boys are watching Even Stevens right now on Disney+. Plus. I don't know how many of you uh, may have, Annie, you're probably in that age that you remember that show, right? It's where Shia LaBeouf got his start. And the cell phones that they had on the show in 1999 and 2000, their phones are like this big, and they look so cool. And I remember watching Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell. That was my sweet spot of television, right? And do you remember his cell phone? It was like this tall and had a huge antenna on it. And that was so cool. And I was like, man, look how cool he is, how rich Zach Morris must be because of that phone. If we saw someone pull one of those out today, we would be like, what is wrong with you? You know, change is inevitable. And it happens so violently and so quickly, but growth is a choice. What in your life in the last five years has changed? I think if we talked about that, like culturally what's changed, technology, your personal life, the things you've gone through, we could make a list that would be staggering of the things that have happened in our life that are changed. I look at you and I know some of your stories really well and know some of the changes that you've experienced even since I've known you. It's pretty incredible. Change is inevitable. It's just part of being human. We can't stop it. The problem becomes sometimes we confuse change and growth. Growth is always a choice. 
And we're going to look today at a, a story in King David when he first becomes king uh, and see that he didn't settle for change, but he actually pursued growth. And it's kind of an odd story. So we're going to typically we'll spend most of our time looking at what the Bible says and then the rest just at the end kind of unpacking what it looks like in our life. Today we're going to do the opposite. But I think this story is really powerful for this idea of change and growth. So if you've got a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to look at the first, uh, I believe, 10 verses or so. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now this is a big deal right off the bat. Let me stop us right here. Because... The nation of Israel was not like a nation like we see it today with nice borders and, you know, here's Israel and it's in the color of blue and then right over here is Syria and it's the color red and down here is Egypt and it's the color orange. Israel didn't work like that in 1000 BC. The way it worked in 1000 BC, it was really more like the Scottish clans of William Wallace's sort of Braveheart era, where you've got, in this sort of geographical area, you've got 12 clans that have their own identity. And David is from one of the southernmost clans, at the most, one of the most insignificant clans, and he comes to be the king. Now, these 12 tribes historically did not relate well to one another. They all came from the same family, from a guy named Israel, Jacob. But they didn't operate well. They were 12 contentious brothers, and their kingdom began to operate like that. And so David, from the southern kingdom, the southern clan, comes to be the king, and he sets up originally his throne in the town of Hebron, which is in the south. Israel is a very skinny nation that runs like this, and David is the king in Hebron. And so the people come to him, and they say, look, we're uniting around you. Our tribes have hated one another for decades, but we're going to come together and we're going to be under you. We're going to sit under your leadership. In fact, they say you are our bone and flesh. No longer are they just identifying by their clan. Now they're saying we're going to identify under your authority. We're going to identify as 12 tribes operating as one. So verse 2, in times past when Saul was king over us, this is the people talking, the leaders, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you will be the prince over Israel. They're recognizing this guy's authority and leadership. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I brought Dowdy up here in the middle of a sermon, and we were talking about anointing, and anointing is when they would pour oil on the head of someone, and they would say, we're affirming you, and as that oil would wash over that person's head, and, and you would have the aroma of it and the beauty of it, they were saying, may God anoint you, and in this moment, the people are coming together, and they're affirming God's call on David, they're anointing his head with oil as king over Israel. Verse 4, now David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So we fast forwarded about 12 years. David's life was this. When he was uh, the, the smallest, tiny, the runt, remember? He was anointed king. He was probably 12, 13 years old. He still had the peach fuzz on his face. And then for the next few years, he gets a gig. In addition to being a shepherd, he gets a gig as being the guy who comes in and basically plays the guitar for King Saul. Because King Saul was bipolar and probably manic depressant. And he would go into these fits of rage. And when he would be raging in these sort of 
inner demons would be tormenting him, they hired David, who had grown really adept at playing the guitar with the sheep. They hired him to come in and play the guitar for King Saul. And then out of that, David's still shepherding. Saul doesn't really even know him. He doesn't pay attention. He's just the guitar player when he's having a fit of rage. Out of that, David, remember, comes out to the battlefield and takes down Goliath. At this point, David is still a teenager. He's still young. He's still watching the sheep. But now he begins to have a bit of a following. The people love him. He's known as the guy who took down Goliath and saved the entire nation of Israel from slavery. Well, as his fame grows with the people... His popularity with King Saul obviously goes down because the people love David and they're beginning to resent crazy Saul. And so David has to go into hiding and he goes into the wilderness. And for about a decade, a little more, he's in the wilderness. He gathers a bunch of men and it becomes like that episode. Have any of you watched The Mandalorian? There's an episode in The Mandalorian. And if you haven't, there's, an, there's a basically, it's in all shows. It's, there's an A-team episode that's like this from the 80s. There's probably a Gunsmoke or Bonanza episode like this from the 50s and 60s where essentially the good guys come into town and the people in the village are being oppressed by the bad guys and the good guys are charged with running the bad guys out even though they have no skin in the game. They could have just left town, right? And so there's an episode of The Mandalorian where this happens and this is what happens with David for about 10 years. He and his band of guys come into these little villages that are being oppressed and they kind of liberate them and in doing that David begins in the southern part of the kingdom to build this huge following and so he's built this following and now he's 30 and he becomes king because Saul dies two of Saul's kids and allies try to take the kingdom and it doesn't happen and when that happens David's leadership is galvanized, and everyone recognizes him as king. And that's where we find ourselves. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And then at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and over all Judah for 33 years, over all the 12 tribes, the kingdom. And the king, David, verse 6, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now, because this didn't operate as one country in one color on the map with one clear set of boundaries, right? You still have these little pockets where you've got enemy people who didn't follow God and didn't believe God. And one of those groups of people was a group called the Jebusites. And if you read the Old Testament, in Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, 500 years before David, God said, you got to get the Jebusites out of this country. you got to get them out of here. Get them off the map. And the people didn't do it because their city... Jerusalem, the city of peace, sat on a hill with three valleys around it. And the people of God would come to the city and be like, those people up there are crazy. They are wild. We can't get up the hill to then get in their walls to take them out. And so you have these 12 tribes, the people of God, and this one group of people in this really well-positioned city right in the middle. Jerusalem's right in the middle of the map. And, uh, and they can't get in. They can't take this one city. So the king went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you're not coming in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. This idea of the blind and lame, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but kind of keep that in your head, if you will. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David, that is Jerusalem. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. In your Bible, that should be in quotes, 
right? Do you see that? It's a phrase. David's talking, so you get the single quotes, or you get the double quotes. And he said, whoever's going to go attack, they've got to go up this water shaft to attack the single quotes, the lame and the blind. He's quoting the Jebusites, who are hated by David's soul. Now, that's a weird phrase. Because David was a man after God's own heart. I don't think God hates a lot of people, right? When I think of God, I don't think of hate. I imagine you would be of the same camp. And so it's David is talking, and he's talking about, we've got to take out these lame and blind who I hate. Well, that's an odd phrase. We're going to talk about it in just a second. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come in the house. And David lived in the stronghold. He took the city, and he called it the city of David, no longer the city of the Jebusites. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater. Look at that. That's a growth phrase. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, there's two things in that city that we've got to know about. One, there's a water shaft, and that's how they attack the city. There's a water shaft. So David says, if we're going to get in and we're going to take the city and we have to take the city, then you've got to go up through the water shaft. The other thing that's going on is this thing called the lame and the blind. Now, it can only be, I think, as I study this thing and, and read what people have said over the centuries, they only come to one of three conclusions about what this thing, the lame and the blind, is. One possibility is they're saying the lame and the blind will ward off David because the lame and the blind was a way of saying no one's getting in there. And even the most, um, even the most, like even the lame and the blind could kick anybody out of Jerusalem because by the time they got up the hill and over the wall, they would be so exhausted that they would just be killed. Now, that is most definitely a possibility that they're It just doesn't seem likely that the Jebusites are making fun of their own people and identifying themselves by their weakest members of their community. That didn't happen in ancient times. The second possibility is that the blind of a lame is a way to mock David and the Israelites, saying anyone could defeat them. This actually seems more possible, that uh, they're mocking David and saying David and his people are so stupid and they're so weak And they're so unable that we could put the blind and the lame up here and they're going to take out David and his people. So instead of insulting their people, maybe they're insulting David. That seems very commonsensical. But the third possibility, and I think this is what's probably going on, there's a French rabbi named Rabbi Gersonides. And and, and he put this idea out there. It's based on hundreds of years of Jewish sort of thinking and history about this episode. And Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, who's one of my favorite theologians, uh, embraces this idea as well. And the idea is that the Jebusites created this, uh, almost like an effigy, uh, almost like a bunch of little, uh, little men. And they had this pulley system that would run around the wall of the city. And they called these little, these little things the, the lame and the blind. And when people would begin to look like they were going to come up to attack the city, they would start using the pulleys like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Remember when the bad guys are sitting on the corner and he's got the the statue on the little thing on the train. They're moving around and he's dancing and all that. Like that's what they've created. And they've called this pulley effigy system the lame and the blind. Now this makes sense, especially when you understand that this rabbi believes that the lame and the blind probably had a sign on them that had the name of the tribes of Israel or of God's people. 
So they were mocking, calling God's people the lame and the blind. And every time that David and these tribes or anybody would look to attack, they would say, they would rustle it and everybody would think, oh, the lame and the blind. And so that's why it says, David says, we're going to take out the lame and the blind who I hate because it was a sign like Goliath mocking God and saying God can't do anything. And so where all of these uh, people of God, just like with Goliath, had been seeing this for centuries and doing nothing, now David is saying, we have to take this out. Whatever it was, David's people conquered and David settled the kingdom in the middle of the country between the two tribes. The northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes, Hebron was in the south, Jerusalem sits right on the border. Right on the border, and, and David now is the king for everybody. So a few things are happening. He's growing into being the king. He's growing in. He's no longer the boy with the peach fuzz. And he's no longer the fugitive hiding in the wilderness, setting up oppressed people free. He's growing into being king. And I want to tell you, as your pastor, that God wants to grow you into new roles in your faith. There's new roles that God wants to give you in your life. Second, he's growing the territory. He's taking what was Israel's all along. He's growing the territory. He's taking a new city, a new area. God wants you and your life to have new area that has belonged to sin or Satan or defeat for a long time. God wants you to take it. It's your birthright. And as you grow, part of growing is God's going to give you new territory. David's growing in obedience. He's fulfilling a difficult command of God. God is calling you and I to new and deeper levels of obedience and new victories. There have been places in my life where I would look and say, I can't, I can never get a victory over that sin. I can never get a victory over that way of thinking. I can never get a victory over that. And this story reminds us that for 500 years, these people had thought we can't take that city. But God said, yes, you can. Change is inevitable. Growth is a choice. You can have new and deeper levels of obedience. He's growing in courage, and he's growing the people's courage. You can have new character and new faith, and he's growing in leadership. You can have new and deeper influence with others. Jamie just started a new job, and the job that Jamie agreed to required that he was going to be sort of leading a couple of people but when he got to the job on the first day because the company is doing well he found out that he's actually going to be leading five times more people than he originally agreed to right listen change is inevitable but growth into that role is a choice and part of God's very best in Jamie's life is new influence and stewarding that opportunity really well and God's going to do that with and for all of us. David isn't riding the ways of change. He is growing as his situation evolves. Now I'm going to go over five slides really fast. You're going to get all the points in about a five minute window here. Here we go. You ready? Here's the first one. Do not confuse change with growth. Change and growth are not the same thing. Change, all right, let me go to the second one. Change is inevitable. Growth is a choice. Situations change. Situations change. Change is inevitable, but growth is a choice. It's always a choice on whether or not we grow. Man, coaches, coaching all these young guys, I guarantee you that the season that these young men thought they were signing up for and the season they find themselves in the middle of are two different things, correct? Correct. In the middle of that, change has happened. The situation has changed. 
But how Jamar and Dasheen and Dowdy and Dabriel and Melvin and Wilmer and all those guys process through it, that's their choice. And it's your job and in your family and with your faith, change happens. But how you process it and respond to it and grow in the middle of it, it's always a choice. Here's the third thing. Now, here's where it gets painful. Growth never comes without discomfort and resistance. You will never grow. You, ne- you will never grow uh, without resistance. And, dis- and, and resistance causes discomfort. I need to be running more. My mom had her first heart attack when she was about seven years older than I am right now. And there's a part of me that's like, I'm coming up on that heart attack sweet spot. Like, and so, you know, I think about that. I'm like, I probably should go across the street and run on that track. And man, I can make some excuses for why I don't do it. There's snow on it. There's rain on it. There's wind around it. It's far away. It's not even that far away. I've got all these different great excuses, right? Because growth never comes without resistance and some discomfort. But here's the, here's the other part of that. Growth always demands courage. Growth always demands courage. People don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. So growth always demands courage. It demands that we say, like it demands like David. David said, look, here's a city. It's going to be difficult to get into. They've been trying to take this thing for 500 years. No one can seem to do it. It's going to take some courage, guys. You have to go up through the water shaft. These people only have one place where they can be attacked. They're probably going to be standing there with swords and clubs and everything else when you come up. But we got to take this city. So growth always demands courage. But here's the last thing, and David in this story would point to it. Growth is always worth it. Growth is always worth it. Always, 100% of the time. Your spiritual situation will change. Your relationships will change. Your employment will change. Your family dynamics will change. Your finances will change. To be alive is to change. When we stop changing, we need to check our pulse. We've started dying. We've actually completed dying at that moment. But you can change. We can change. Change is a choice. The first people, I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible as it relates to change. The very first human beings ever were put into the middle of a garden, and because there was no sin and nothing wrong with it, they were in the middle of complete perfection, and because it was perfect, they had complete intimacy with God. There was nothing that had to change or grow because it was all perfect. And then they sinned and rebelled against God, and change began to happen for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but now... Because of sin, change was happening separate from God. What it means to be non-Christian or lost or to not have a relationship with God is to live in the middle of change without God right there with you journeying through it. And this is what happened to people forever. They were changing and being changed without relationship with God. Then Jesus comes on the scene in a changing world, and he dies for the sins of humanity. Three days later, he rises again. He spends 40 days on earth wrapping things up, but then he promises, after the disciples prayed and waited for 40 days, that God's Spirit would come and live in them. That God would come and live in them. Before this, like in David's day, people could know about God, 
And the Bible would even say that God's spirit would come on to people. But Jesus says, when I leave and go back up to heaven, then God's spirit will come and live in a person. I will come, he says, and live in you. This is the first time in human history this ever happened. We have a level of access to God as Christians that King David did not have. And we have a level of access and relationship with God that the 12 disciples did not have even when they walked with Jesus on earth. Because if Jesus, guess what? If Jesus went to pray behind that curtain and the disciples were hanging out here, they were not with God. But after God's spirit came and began to live in people, now for the first time, if Jesus had gone behind the curtain, God was still no more or less with them. He was with them. That's what it means to be born again and to be a Christian. It means that God's spirit begins to live in you. Last week, I even said something that uh, it's not a mistake. It was very strategically said. But I said, when you face a giant, don't look uh, out at your giant. Don't look into your inner strength. I said, but look up to God. And that's a bit of a metaphor for a Christian because the truth is a Christian does not have to look up to God. They actually look into God because to be a Christian means God's spirit lives in us and we look into him rather than into ourselves. So now God's spirit is in us. So in a changing world, God calls us to growth, but growth is partnership. Growth is partnership. I loved it. Like as a kid, my granddad would ask me to do tasks he would do with me in such a way that I felt like I was doing it, but it was really him doing it. You know, push this wheelbarrow over here. And I would think I was the one carrying the weight at eight years old of this wheelbarrow full of dirt and potatoes and whatever. And the truth was, it was him doing it all, but letting me carry it and feel like I accomplished something. It's a partnership between my granddad and I My granddad was shouldering all the weight. That's what it means to live the Christian life. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, So then, my brothers, in my absence, like you've always obeyed my presence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, we work out our faith while God is working in us, like my granddad carrying the wheelbarrow. He's working in us to change our desires and our behaviors. We work it out. God works it in. To be a Christian means to never be alone in a changing world and to be empowered for growth and faith. It doesn't mean we have to be better on our own to work our way to God. It means God is in us, helping us know him and become like him, the person we were always intended to be. Now, you've got uh, on the end of your, on the end of the rows, there's uh, a wheel, a paper that looks like this. Will you make sure to pass those down? You should have it on the end of your seat. Barb, do you have some under yours? No? Well, here, Barb, I have some for you. Oh, Fasten's bringing them down. Perfect. Take one down, pass it around. It's like the old Scantron test. Jamar, will you take one to coach back there? Tell him I said he needs to see this too. Be the man. Perfect. First time I saw this changed my life. And I hope it changes yours. This is probably, if you can burn this onto your brain, this will be, I would say, the most helpful thing that you'll probably ever get beside the Bible to help you with your spiritual growth, quite frankly. I call this the disciple wheel. 
Uh, I didn't make that up. It comes from people over the last 40 years have sort of just come up with a way to, to talk about what it means to grow in our faith. Um, so start at high noon, if you will. And this is all human beings. The biblical narrative would say that every human being ever created finds themselves beginning at high noon on this, and they were born uh, dead. The Bible says we're all born dead. There's the, the bad news. Let's start with the bad news, right? Everyone is born dead because of sin. Now, you could be a minus 10. Everything you've got there is up, up here as well. You could be a minus 10. This would be like the most militant, hardcore atheist. I hate God. I hate God's people. I hate the church. I burn down churches on the weekend for fun. Like minus 10, hates God. It could be the agnostic who's a minus 6 or 7. They don't know. They don't really care. It's not a big deal. Could be the person who is of another faith. Maybe they're a minus four. They really believe there's a God. They just are worshiping, find themselves because of upbringing or confusion, uh, worshiping the wrong God. Could be even the minus one who's a nice person who sort of generally believes in God, even does nice things for God. Some people came up to uh, Jesus one time and he said that there will be people at the end of time who will come to him and say, Jesus, we loved you. Didn't we love you? And didn't we do nice things for you? And didn't we believe? And even didn't we cast out the demons in your name? And Jesus says, and I'm going to tell them, get away from me, you evil doers, you people who did evil and they were good things. He says, because I never knew you. So a minus one might be the person who has really great intentions and is really close to God, but is thinking they have to do something to get to God rather than just be known by God. So we all start at, at, we all start at death, uh, spiritually separated from God. And usually people have a series of objections, by the way. Sometimes it's head objections. They need to get some questions answered. Like, does God really hate gay people like I hear in culture? Or does God, uh, did Jesus hate women? Or are there hidden books of the Bible that the church has been hiding from me for centuries? Or is the earth really old or any of that? Those are head objections. Sometimes there's heart objections. Like, why did my grandma die when I loved her the most? Why did God let my grandma die? Or why did someone hurt me when I was a kid and they said they were a Christian? Those are hard objections. Sometimes people need to work through those. And ultimately, it's a will objection. It's just a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, at that moment, to be born again, someone confesses their sin, repents or turns, and asks God for forgiveness that's made available through Jesus' death on the cross. And they ask God for relationship with him from that day forward. Now, if you're looking at this, you can see that's the one line. It's a hard line. All these others are kind of blurry lines a little bit. But this line, crossing from death to life in Christ, is a decision. Just like I can tell you, my kids were born on May 29th, 2009, and March 1st, 2012. There was a moment where they were not on planet Earth, and then there was a moment where they were on planet Earth, and I was running away from the scissors that would cut the umbilical cord. Like, they were on earth, and I was terrified and excited, right? They were born. And there has to be a moment where a person is born again, the Bible says, okay? That's a definite moment. But when that happens, someone is born again. Uh, they become part of God's family. They become forgiven and made new. And their first step biblically... And we can talk about this later if you want a little bit more. But the first step of a person who's been born again is baptism. It's public 
uh, identification, personal public identification with Jesus. It's saying, I make this decision. I baptized a lot of people who grew up Catholic or Presbyterian or of a denomination where they were sprinkled as babies, and I think that's great. It's the parents saying they want to raise their kid that way, but dunking, which we do here, is a personal declaration of, I decided that I'm going to follow Jesus and I've been born again. And biblically, that's the first biblical step, following Jesus. It's not required to be saved, but it is natural and biblical. And most believers, I know, deal with this inner restlessness. The people who don't do that uh, and really love God, like in some of you, quite frankly, were sprinkled as babies, and you love God, but you've not ever publicly done that. Most of you, in my experience of talking with you, God continues to bring you back to that point. You think, should I do that? Should I do it? And I would say, yes, you should do that. It's very humbling, but you should do that. It's not required, but it will uh, release that restlessness. I'll tell you a crazy story about this. My mother-in-law turned 70 a couple of years ago or last year, when she was baptized as a kid, the baptism didn't save her or whatever, but when she was being baptized, the little dress she had on came over her head in the middle of it happening, and it scared her because she had had a brother who drowned as a baby or as a kid when she was younger. And so she would say all she remembers of her baptism was fear and panic and not that she was making a declaration she was following Jesus. And so for her 70th birthday, her gift to herself was, she said, I'm going to be baptized again because that first one was just traumatic for me. But this was a declaration that I was following God with however many more years God gave me. What a statement of humility and power. I think that's incredible. So the next thing that happens after the born again sort of moment is someone becomes an infant. Now an infant... Uh, and, and by the way, these stages are all described in Scripture, and they are not necessarily, uh, they don't have timelines that come with them. There's not like even a crossover line per se, just like human growth. I don't remember when I went from being a young adult to a, an adult necessarily, or a kid to being a teenager, exactly. And they're not time-based, frankly. These aren't time-based lines. And the last thing I'll say is they don't cause someone to be more valuable or loved by God of a church. Like, if Annie is here, but Natalie is here, then God doesn't love Annie more, and I don't love Annie more than I would love Natalie, which is a bad example because Natalie's my wife, right? It doesn't say anything about value or lovability with God based on where you are, okay? When that happens, um, someone becomes an infant. An infant's life is marked by helplessness and ignorance, an infant doesn't know what they don't know. They just need someone to help them. And at this stage, if you're at this stage, and some of us are, and that's fantastic, we need others, we need a friend, an example, and we need a church to be the church. Some of you are infant in your faith, and you just need a place to come on Sunday and learn how to do this. And like, some of you will say, well, man, I don't know where this book in the Bible is. That's why we always say the page numbers, because some of us are infants. If in 20 years, I'm still having to tell you the page number for every book of the Bible, that's not good, right? Like, that's not a good thing. And so part of growth is having others and a church and a friend and an example to help you at this stage and to see that the biggest discipline that someone needs at infant stage is just to show up on Sunday and not be a lone ranger. Just keep showing up and not be a lone ranger, 
You need someone to be journeying with you. Now, at some point, you pivot from infant to a child. This is where some of our kids are, and they can make us crazy. Honestly, most people sitting in churches are at child level spiritually. This is a stage that's marked by selfishness, and the greatest need is connection. They need to be connected with God by learning to feed themselves on prayer and the Bible. They need to be connected with community. They need to be part of a group where they're not just sitting on Sunday, but they're actually interacting and dialoguing about what God's doing in their life. And then they need to be connected by what we'll call a kingdom imagination, learning to see and serve and see God's kingdom at work in a place and understanding that we're stewards of our lives. Ultimately, the way someone graduates from here to here is by learning to self-feed on God's word. And so on the table back there, we actually have life, uh, we call them life journals. We'd love for you to grab one if you never have. It just has a way to do that, to begin to self-feed. If you say, I'm at infant level, I don't know how to do that. Ask your best friend here or someone here, will you teach me how to do that? When Renee was first a Christian, we would meet at Anna's. He probably didn't even know I was doing it to him. But we would sit and say, all right, you read some of Ephesians this week. What did you read? What did you like? What stood out? What do you need to do in light of that? And now Renee will call me during the week and say often, hey man, I'm reading this in the Bible. This is amazing. He's learned to self-feed. That's, this is the hardest part to grow past because it requires not just dependence on showing up, but it requires dependence on God's spirit uh, and learning to feed yourself uh, rather than be fed by a pastor or someone else. I would see this a lot. I've seen this a lot in the church. A lot of times people think they're really mature Christians because they've been Christians for a long time. They're really just demanding children because they've never taught themselves how to walk with God or they've never learned and chosen to walk with God. Their life has changed. Their faith has changed. They haven't grown. People get stuck here the most and longest, but you can pivot from child to young adult. This stage is marked by a sense of others. You become more God-centered and other-centered. And you have a willingness to serve and it not be about you. There's a need here for training and empowerment. I just told you a minute ago, today, here's what happens when you get the young adult stage in your faith. We walk you through a process. We do, you watch. This is what Jesus did with the disciples. Jesus would do, the 12 of them would watch. Then there came a moment where Jesus says, now you go do it and we're going to watch. And then the final moment is where Jesus would say, you go do it. You guys got this. That happens here. A few weeks ago, Lana said, I'm willing to come and be a kid's teacher so that Natalie and Kayla can begin to come into worship more often. She has never done that in a church setting here. So for a moment, it was, we're going to do this, Lana. You just come watch. And then it transitioned the other night to Kayla coming over and teaching her how to do it. You're going to do it. She's walking her through it. We're going to watch. And then today, we're saying, Lana, you got it. Nat's sitting here in church, loving it, right? You got this. Dasheen is down there with Lana. Dasheen now, in this process of learning to give and serve, is further back. This is how this works, okay? This is part of maturing and changing and growing. At this stage, you can do the ministry. You can also talk about what you believe and why you believe it on some level. Tell why you're doing it. Now, I'm going to give you two big disclaimers for the people at this level, all right? 
or aspiring to get here. Burnout happens. Burnout, ministry burnout happens when someone is doing these behaviors but doesn't have these relationships or these disciplines. If someone's trying to do church but doesn't have people helping them, encouraging them, loving them, speaking into them, and then also doesn't have, isn't being fed on God's word, they always burn out. It happens 100% of the time. I've seen guys start churches and burn out for that very reason. That's when burnout occurs. The second thing, though, I want to tell you is this is where the fun starts happening. Like, if you think about the Christians in your life, you're like, that woman was awesome. That man was awesome. It's because they got to that level and beyond. This is where the fun really starts happening, where the great adventure that you were created to live gets lived. This is where the heroes of faith are made. This is where communities get transformed. This is where joy is so deep and contagious that it's the stuff of movies and songs and legends. And then finally, we begin to pivot from young adult to parent. And notice, it doesn't say from young adult to adult. Because a Christian has not fully matured and become all that they, uh, God intended them to be until they can reproduce their faith and be a disciple who can make a disciple who can make a disciple. My friend Sean, I put the quote on there. My friend Sean recently said, the end result of your spiritual maturity is your focus on those who don't yet have it. The end result of your spiritual maturity is your focus on those who don't yet have it. The closer you get to Jesus, the more time you spend with those who are farthest from him. It's a powerful statement. God didn't intend you to become part of this Christian ghetto, this Christian enclave. He intended for us to live so winsomely and to go into places like that video showed earlier because of the gospel and become people of influence. The discipline here is to lead another person to faith and help them journey with them from infant to child to young adult to parent so that they can then one day lead someone else to faith. And, and the job and our job is to set you free to go around the block or to go around the world and do it. Carson told me a month ago, he said, J.D., I've never been on like a mission type of mission trip. He's like, I want to do that. I think it's great. We're going to do that. I don't know when, where, how, why yet. I know why. I'm not sure how, when, or where yet. But we're going to do that. That's part of growing. And we set you free to go and do that very powerfully. I never will forget, we had a friend named Sarah in our last church. And Sarah's a really, really talented musician. I have got to shut up. Um, I've got to bring this into the barn. Sarah's a talented musician. We took her on one of those trips when she was at this level to go to Stockholm, Sweden, to work with a missionary who's just a missionary to musicians. And she came back from that trip and said, what we were doing in Sweden, I want to do that in Greenville. Uh, And so we trained her, we equipped her, we walked her through the same process. And you know what? Eventually, some of the best musicians, and I don't mean like Christian singers, I mean the best musicians in our town were coming to the church that Sarah was part of because she had just gone and loved people like Jesus loved them right where they were. And I remember one night, there was a concert in our downtown. Our, our town was uh, half a million people, the sort of the area our town was uh, in where we came from. And there was a concert one night, and there were like almost a thousand people at this concert for these people who led worship at our church on Sunday. And they were just singing like Beatles covers and 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s songs, right? And I remember looking and saying, God, this all started because Sarah went on a trip and saw that change is inevitable, but growth is a choice. And she chose to begin to live like a spiritual 
parent. The whole, this whole thing is the Christian life. If someone gets stuck at child stage, they're just living a portion and misunderstand the gospel and why Jesus died. They're denying who Jesus called them to be when he called you or I to follow him. It would be like David saying, you know, there's this perfectly strategic, beautiful, amazing city that nobody could get that's perfectly in the middle of the kingdom. We're just going to let that one go because it's going to cost to go get it. That's what happens when a Christian gets stuck. They say, I know it's there. I know it's for the taking. I know God wants me to take that and become that and be that. It's really difficult, so I'm just going to leave it alone. It's less than what God called us and intended for us to be. Change is inevitable. Growth is always a choice. This is God's growth plan for your life, all of it. From the youngest toddler downstairs, which is Bryn, I believe, today. This is God's plan for Bryn's life. To the oldest senior saint sitting here, who's part of our church and not here today, this is their plan. And every one of the 18,000 people in this community, and every one of the 5.9 million people who live in greater Boston, and every one of the 7 billion people who live on planet Earth, this is God's plan for their life. Everyone, everyone. David grew in leadership. David grew in territory, courage, and influence. There's a guy, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, who came to Christ actually right downtown behind the, behind the old state house uh, at a shoe store. A guy walked into the store where he sold shoes and led him to faith. Dwight Moody was probably one of the greatest American evangelists of the 19th century. And Dwight Moody never went to seminary. He never was ordained. He never was uh, recognized as this great educated pastor. He would always be very frank to tell people that. People would call him Reverend Moody or Dr. Moody, and he would correct them. But Moody was great at a few things. He would start YMCAs so that people would be served meals and shelter and community so that they could hear the gospel. He would start Sunday schools to help men and women be able to read and to learn the Bible, and he would preach the gospel. And when Moody was one time in the 1800s, he was in Great Britain, and somebody came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, the world has never yet seen what God can do in and for and through a person wholly surrendered to him. And man, Moody took that quote to heart and built his whole life around it. This is what happens. This is what God does in and for and through a person when they live wholly surrendered to him. Change is inevitable. Growth in relationship with God is always a choice. Let me pray for us.